I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. We can all agree that 2020 was a tough year. From the disparate impact the COVID-19 crisis has had on lower-wage workers deemed to be essential, to the inadequacies of our healthcare and political systems, and, of course, the terrifying glimpses we had of historic wildfires raving across the West Coast. But here on Fintech Beat, we are not afraid to tackle big, tough questions head-on, and we explore not only the latest in fintech infrastructures and policy developments— but also how financial technology can be brought to bear on issues like climate change, racial justice, equality, and inclusion. So in this episode, we're starting the new year off right, taking a slightly different angle to see whether or not it's possible for fintech to not just be more aware of these challenges and changes in the world, but to actually help build companies that will confront them. Now, To help us through this terrain, we are continuing our series of investor interviews co-hosted by my friend Amias Garrity, and today we have the treat of talking to Emmeline Shaw, the managing partner at Flourish Ventures. Now, Flourish is an unusual venture firm. It has just one investor, the eBay founder, Pierre Omidyar, and its portfolio ranges from some of the most successful fintechs in the world to policy advocacy groups here in Washington aimed at promoting financial help and inclusion. Now, to lead this very different kind of venture, Emmelyn is no ordinary VC, and her career has included stops on Wall Street, as well as investments in the Bleacher Report and Huffington Post. She'll be walking us through what it means, from her perspective, for systems to change and what role technology and venture capital can play in solving problems that have been overlooked by mainstream finance and modern tech. It's New Year. Welcome back to The Beat. Thanks, Chris. MLN, such a pleasure, and welcome to Fintech Beat. Thank you so much for having me. From a technical perspective, Flourish is pretty interesting in that it isn't structured like a normal venture fund. So let's start with what are those differences and how do they affect what you're able to invest in and how you evaluate the investments you make? Yeah, thanks. Look, Flourish is a early stage $500 million global fintech fund. And we invest in technology that advances financial health and economic resilience. As Chris mentioned, Pierre Midiar is founder of eBay, is our sole limited partner. Uh, 90% of our capital is targeted towards investing in these global fintech companies who are positioned to both yield venture returns and whose technology, either through direct-to-consumer or indirectly through infrastructure, improve financial health. Now, we invest you know, globally, so half our capital is U.S., the other, ha- the other half is Africa, India, Latin America, other parts of Southeast Asia, And in the U.S., we focus specifically on the 70% of U.S. Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck, right? So for whom even 40% don't even have 400 for an emergency should one arise. 
But we also realized that, you know, having been a traditional venture capitalist for a very long time, you know, the disruption can happen and you can fundamentally shift um, the technology landscape. In financial services, it's a little bit more complex, right? We have this thing called regulation (laughs) and regulators do wonders in terms of making sure uh, they're looking out for consumers, et cetera. But it also means that we have to work within those constructs and and those networks. And so 10% of our capital is actually dedicated towards funding grant dollars to industry thought leaders in research and policy and regulation, such as folks like the Financial Health Network um, or the former former U.S. regulator, Joanne Barefoot, through uh, Alliance for Innovation. Now, as it relates to kind of our evaluation, how do we think about making investments you know, we build investment themes along key components that we think drive financial health. So they're around saving, spending thoughtfully. How do you access affordable credit, insurance services? And ultimately, and as importantly, how do you increase income, you know, to name a few for these consumers? And we look for the disruptive technologies, again, either direct-to-consumer infrastructure, but the initial wedge has to be solving a critical problem. Um, and I think it's important to point out, though, that solving that problem for consumers or businesses on its own is insufficient. So the company must not only scale and realize commercial returns, but by virtue of its innovation, it needs to create or influence what we call a sector level impact. And we kind of hope to see our investments and their success drive what is basically a broader change among incumbents to see an incumbent level response so that all consumers benefit. It's so interesting, MLN, that you focus not just on the question of how can this company be a winner, but actually affirmatively highlighting the potential competitive response by incumbents as part of your investment thesis and part of what you value. That must be so interesting to talk about uh, internally. How are the incumbents going to respond and how would that also be good for the world? Right. No, it's very exciting. In fact, we think it's a critical piece of that determination of whether this investment is going to create that system level change. So many VCs talk about world-changing companies. And I think sometimes in the Valley or elsewhere, that can sort of be, uh, you know, focused on the worlds of their customers or their investors or their executives and less on, I think, the way you or I might define actually changing the world. So before we get into changing the world through venture, I'd love to hear how you and how Flourish actually think it is possible for the world to change? What does it mean for a sector to change or for systems to change at a national or global level? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, look, you know, there, there's the, the academic perspective, right? Is, you know, there's an intentional process designed to fundamentally alter components and its underlying infrastructures. And that system shift is what we're talking about. I think at a a more macro level, you know, system change is the emergence of either a new pattern of organization or system structure, right? That's the kind of the the classic definition. And the way we kind of see that as it relates to our work and its application is we take a hybrid approach, right? So we, as I mentioned before, we believe in the power of entrepreneurs. We believe in the power of innovation. And we know that's incredibly important. But as importantly, we think we need to add you know, we want to add the voice of the incumbents and the regulators. Um, and we think that we need to do that collectively. And that's why we work so closely with regulators to modernize the regulatory system. Do you have good frameworks for measuring when when the change is, is really happening? I mean, if you take one of the themes that you've been observing for a number of years, how do you measure when you start to feel the, the new world 
coming into view compared to the old world receding? Let me give you an example. Let's ground us in something a little bit. because I think it'll help. Um, one of our investments uh, is in a company called Chime. And you know, we looked at challenger banks as a, as a category back in 2017. And actually, since our investments have made nine globally. Um, but, but to give an example of, of kind of both the micro success, but more importantly, or as importantly, what that means from a systems level shift is really around, um, you know, the, we can go through the details, but you, don't, you probably, you know, all too well, the company's done quite well. It's most recent valuations, 14 half billion. Um, it's, it's considered among the leaders in the challenger bank space. And I think, and, and you know, profitable the like, all these things are wonderful in terms of its underlying success. But really, they, in addition to a number of other challenger banks that have also realized some quite strong momentum, have created a really material shift in the broader ecosystem, right? So you've seen incumbents really respond and recognizing, wow, we need to be competitive here. We need to figure out how to, how to respond to creating some really important digital offerings that are you know, customer first. And you're starting to see them revisit, you know, the, the low cost fees and, and things like overdraft and the like. And, and so I think it's, it's beginning to see how important that, that action that needs to take place. And as far as I'm concerned, I would love to see this year and beyond a real shift, right? So you're starting to see what we call the tipping point of that right now, right? With these, with these strong responses globally by incumbents. But over time, we want to see things like predatory overdraft fees, which in the U.S. is $34 billion market that go away. We want to think about the low minimum balance and other costly fees go away. We'd like to think of banks understanding that financial health matters for consumers and they should be creating a lot of budgetary apps and be thinking about what are the types of unique products and services that boost savings, that provide credit building solutions to improve their own retention in LTV. It's when that shift happens that you start to see a massive, and that's where systems change. Yeah, we we see this this competitive dynamic in in the small and in the large and I think it's so interesting to focus on the big picture changes, right? Of focus on financial health, focus on budget, focus on better recommendations, focus on the elimination of fees. And yet some of the the breadcrumbs for that are very little things in user experience. So, I'll give an example. We talked with a regional bank recently who is very focused on how do they get logos Mm-hmm. of the merchants that their customers are transacting with into their mobile banking app. And I know for a fact that that logo feature request is because of the success of neobanks creating really just rich and vibrant mobile banking apps. So it has nothing to do with fees. It has nothing to do with, with the kinds of systems change that we both want to see. But it just goes to show that the banks are paying attention and they're realizing then in order to compete, they've got to up their game. And I do think that even these little feature requests really create the breadcrumbs for potential broader change in, in the ecosystem. Absolutely. One maybe just more of an overarching direction for your question earlier, and, and I think it's an important one because it, for us, it's kind of our North Star. But we really, we do think and view what we'd like to see in the world. And that it looks like a fair financial system. And it kind of has like a five tenets at the highest level. And, and, and I think you'll appreciate this more so than, than anyone because, because I think they're really aligned with the way we view the world and where we want to see financial services evolve. And they're as simple as financial services need to empower people to achieve their life goals. So goals around savings, goals around their life and how it's going to evolve over time and helping them save to achieve those. Business models are consumer trust and businesses are trustworthy. 
meaning no hidden fees. There's business model alignment. When the companies succeed, the consumers also succeeding. Um, people have meaningful control over their data and they know how it's being collected and used, right? We've seen a lot of that issue arise with general tech and in financial services is even more acute. It's even honestly um, just incredibly um, protective and you don't want that data out. And, and I think it's one that you really want to be able to hold and understand and, and be able to, if you choose to monetize, do it on your own accord. Um, you want a fair financial infrastructure that's open and low cost, right? Um, and then finally, we want digitally native um, regulation that, can that protects consumers and its innovation. We want policymakers and regulators to understand the technologies and to be able to really thoughtfully apply that for consumers. And, and those are all kind of our North Star. And we're really working towards various investments and various partners and various narratives and research to really help bolster those those tenants, because we think that's what we want to see in the world. That's our view of the, a system and a shift and a framework that we're moving towards. Yeah, I find that in my job as an investor, there's an interesting push-pull between laying out frameworks for things I'd like to see, but also being open to what innovators and entrepreneurs are, are pitching me about, oh, maybe I didn't actually realize that change X was possible. Maybe I didn't actually realize that a neobank with zero fees uh, could actually succeed. And so I think in retrospect, it's often easier to see these trends emerge than it is to, to see them at the beginning. And I'd love to, to switch, MLN the perspective you know, from the system to this day-to-day -day role of an investor and use Chime as an example. Because I was looking back through the numbers and Chime has been around since 2013. And as late as 2017, it was still what you might call a regular venture-backed company. It was pretty successful. It was not in any way obvious that, uh, you know, based on the funding that it had done, that Chime was an absolute breakout star. And so I'd love to hear, just pull back the curtain for us. When you guys invested in 2017, what, what was it that you saw that suggested this was the company uh, that, that had the real potential to not just perform well, but to perform in a way that really was going to impact the system's change elements that we just talked about. No, oh, thanks. Look, look, I think at a, um, at a macro level, we took a step back. In 2017, we were creating our thesis for what we wanted to see. What are some of the, the technology shifts in financial services that would meaningfully assist you know, consumer health. And I think against that, we saw the initial movement towards the unbundling of financial services, right? And we recognized, we're like, oh, you know, if you unbundle these services, then actually new digital services can emerge because the cost basis is fundamentally a fraction of the incumbents, right? And you can provide these checking and savings accounts that are no fee and that are transparent and consumer first. What we didn't know admittedly at that time was kind of what was the right business model? What was the right approach? And so for context, we actually made our first investment in the neobank space actually in the UK with Tandem. And, and while we don't actually invest in Europe, as I mentioned earlier, we knew the technology shift as a whole was going to benefit many markets. And we wanted to find a market where the regulatory environment welcomed innovation so that we could learn. And through that, we actually learned a couple things. <laughs> we learned that the partnering route versus the banking license route created a much faster time to market. And the ability to optimize product market fit was pretty critical. And we also learned that the interchange model, specifically in markets like the U.S., enabled a much more seamless path to monetization. 
And it clearly aligned the innovator with the end consumer because they only made money when the consumer found value and spent on its platform, right? And I think those two are really informed us in terms of what we were looking for when we then expanded our look uh, search into the U.S. And again, 2017, we looked at many challenger banks in the U.S. And at the time, you know, and, and still today, obviously, but at the time, time was clearly the choice. And I'll, and I'll talk about why, right? It's not to say it was, it, you're right, it wasn't a home run, it wasn't obvious, but there were clearly reasons why they were the choice to make a bet in that market. And I'll start with the team. So um, many of you know Chris Britt. He, I mean, he's a seasoned executive in financial services. But I think for us, he actually, more importantly, led development in critical products and services that specifically targeted the low to medium income population, right? And that was the focus of Chime, right? They were very maniacally focused and clear from the get-go. And he spent five years at Green Dot prior to starting Chime doing just that. So we understood he understood the service, he understood the needs, he understood the consumer, he understood the distribution channel, he understood the underlying technology partners required to provide those kinds of services. I mean, he had a really deep understanding. And then Ryan King was an incredibly talented innovator, right? He was thoughtful, he's a thoughtful co-founder, obviously incredibly scrappy. And stylistically, they had this very unique balance between like visionary, but they were grounded, insightful, but they were quite humble. Um, and I would say finally, just as again, going to team, they were, they were aligned with our mission, right? They understood what we, and they cared about what we cared about. They were maniacally focused on and committed to creating a financial platform that served all consumers. And that's today the, still the same focus that they both share. Yeah, the, the mission alignment is, is really interesting there because you, you often in you know, impact investing um, and when you focus on impact, you often end up with smaller niches rather than larger niches. But, but in the Chime case, you saw this mission focus, but also huge ambition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I'll talk a little bit about the business level because you rightfully pointed out you know, <laughs> the fact that it was still pretty early. And so I'd love to unpack a little bit about what we saw there. Um, and you're right, it was very early. Um, and, and the business model was unproven. But I'll tell you a little bit about what we did see. So first... They did have unprecedented, and they still do today, retention and engagement. So early on, you know, the users that had locked onto Chime were very happy, were actively using it, and really saw value in what they were providing. High NPS scores, again, and still to this day, even at the scale that they're working on. High NPS scores, that's such an important metric for consumer investing. So talk just, if you will, about how do investors think about NPS? Because I think most people don't think that's called net promoter score. Most people don't think about net promoter score in their daily life. And yet for venture investors, net promoter score is you know, just an absolutely central part of a lot of theses. It's taken 10 years easily for financial services to regain trust by consumers in the US. And most, much of it has been broken, right? And I think to be able to build as a startup in a fintech service, to be able to build that trust-based relationship where they're choosing to come to that site and they're choosing to advocate and choosing to rate that functionality so highly in their everyday use, um, I think says a lot about the hurdle that's required for financial institution today to, to yield those type of results. And so for us as a fintech investor, we're really looking heavily on, well, what does that mean? Like, how much do you value this service? How much do you trust the service? What kinds of transactions are you willing to engage in with this service? And I think that for us was really critical. And seeing that for Chime in particular, 
um, said a lot. And the fact that, it, again, as I mentioned, at the scale it's at today, to still retain that level is just um, incredibly impressive. Yeah, and I, I also think that there's just, again, to pull back from the perspective of how do venture investors think about the fintech ecosystem, this focus on engagement that you talked about is actually really important and really different from the first wave of fintechs, which were very lending focused, to some of the big winners in the second wave, which are more focused on day-to-day transactions. And this word that you used of engagement and the quality and the consistency of engagement has really become an important investment theme uh, for a lot of fintech investors, especially over the last four years. So um, very interesting to hear you pull that out for, uh, for this audience in terms of how investors think. Absolutely. A couple more comments just in terms of what we saw with Chime. And they're really around, and they're important because, again, as you may recall, the, the model is based on interchange. So they get a certain percentage of the transaction of any, of any customer spend. And when you're thinking about the low to medium income population, they're not spending for discretionary items where there's a high beta from month to month. They're buying essentials. But what's beautiful about that is you actually have very consistent spend patterns. You have very consistent, predictable transaction levels. And you know what to expect as you think about how that model may emerge and may evolve over time. We also saw a very thoughtful and clear path towards achieving what we call unit profitability at the unit economic level. And that was within our funding timeframe. So what does that mean for, for a challenger bank, right? You've got cost to acquire a customer, which often is quite high because you're a new bank. You're trying to get someone to maybe switch from a pre-existing bank, or maybe you're getting them to sign up for your banking offer. So it's often high. You're using traditional channels, primarily digital in nature. And then you've got all these costs to actually onboard somebody, right? You've got the processing cost, the technology cost, you've got a, a card issuance cost, um, and all of those together have to kind of work, right, at the, at the individual level. And that's pretty critical, particularly as you think about challenger banks and making investments here. And what we saw was, although at the time, of course, it was not profitable, nor should it have been, right, super early, still trying to optimize for all of these things and trying to, you know, create economies of scale, et cetera. But we did see that it was very clear within that 12 to 18-month time frame that, that we'd get there. And it was really, and one of the key drivers for that was really around Chris's relationship, actually, Chris Britt, that he had developed with Galileo while at Green Dot. And Galileo is a processor, and it's a core part of the cost of actually serving a customer. And we knew that through that, that relationship, he was able to actually negotiate some pretty compelling terms as the company scaled. And that was critical in trying to see, have clear visibility around optimizing a pretty hard part of the unit economics equation. Um, and I think he did that exceptionally well and did that with a lot of visibility. Again, this is where he could rely pretty heavily on an experience from a prior, from Green Dot to really, you know, benefit the customer, the company at Chime. Yeah, there's so much excitement around the neobanking space. And, um, you know, whether it's from our portfolio, there's Current and Albert. In your portfolio, it's not just Chime, but you're also focused globally on neobanks and, and also on, uh, even smaller kind of niches. Um, you know, we we had talked a little bit about uh, Propel, and I'd love to hear you talk just about Propel as a, a kind of a neobank that is focused on a you know particular use case from where they started, which is for recipients of the um, supplemental nutrition and assistance program, the SNAP benefits. And you know, how do you move from this idea of we're going to provide neobanking services? 
to everyone in the United States to then investing in a company that really wants to help a very particular segment of people who are, are definitionally doing worse economically. Yes. Look, I, I, maybe a couple comments. One is, you know, when I think about Chime, for example, they were very specific, right? As I said before, they focus on the low to medium income. They built products specifically for them, right? They, they immediately went to wage advance. They immediately kind of flagged the no overdraft. They added to budget, budgeting and savings tools. They could have gone to, to credit long ago, chose not to. Their first foray into credit is secured credit, right? To build, in order to build credit for consumers. They only can borrow what they actually have saved, right? Those are very critical decisions made around what products are going to serve this consumer base. I think when I think about more broadly, any new challenger bank, which there have been many lately, they need to figure out what is their segmentation? What are the differentiated tools that, that really warrant that segmentation? Because they're going to be competing against everyone, against, and the CAC marketing dollars are going to be quite high. And they have to figure out, does it, are they, is it sustainable to be a financial services only bank to serve that base? And it's not clear to me that many of them, there's check marks across all of those. But when I think about Propel, I actually think of it very little differently. Um, so as you, as you rightfully point out, so Propel offers, you know, at its core, real-time tracking plat- um, platform for families who receive food stamps. So today, it's very difficult to actually know what, what level, where is my food stamp level from any given month? And to be able to track that and then have an app that provides discounts and budgeting tools is really useful for this space. And they did this and they created this really highly engaged, again, going back to engagement, loyal base um, with over 4 million users and growing even more so in COVID um, at a very de minimis CAC. I mean, like astronomically de minimis CAC, meaning they didn't have much, they didn't have to pay a lot to acquire these customers because the need was so clear, right? And when I think about Propel's extension into financial services, for me, it's a great example of embedded finance, right? It's not... It's not that they're going to be a challenger bank and that's what they're going to, they're going to start from scratch and they're going to try to amass this customer base on its own. No, they have a very deep set of relationships with users who would normally never convene in any traditional content platform, right? By providing critical services, which in this case is kind of managing their stamp um, levels and, and then tracking them and finding discounts. And I think that unique insight into those customers and the needs and purchasing patterns allow them to add differentiated services to this base from a trusted party, right? It's a natural extension they're offering. And I think that it's, it's that. And so the question is like, for me, I think they're incredibly well positioned to figure out what are the needs of this base, which is even arguably maybe slightly overlapping with time, but lower in terms of income level. And so what, are, and they're going to need a lot of things. And it's not just financial services, right? They're going to need other, other services that are going to add to a broader platform that are, that are targeting the space. Yeah, and this goes back to something you said earlier about the idea of, you know, this is not just about cheaper financial services. It's also about the whole picture of someone's financial life. And maybe that's income, maybe that's discounts, maybe that's other information. So I I do like the way you're you're making a distinction between the neobank and just a more broader picture of customer centricity for a company like Propel. Yeah. So, Emmeline, as we close, I want to shift topics uh, pretty significantly. And Close with a question about climate change. So together, we've invested in a home insurance company called Kin that's directly serving households that are exposed to climate risks. But my sense is that the interaction between financial services, technology, innovation, and climate change 
this is just the tip of the iceberg, what we're seeing right now. And so I'd love to hear you talk about what do you think the next five years holds and how does Flourish think about uh, climate change, this you know, seemingly non-financial risk. It's not a financial health issue necessarily, um, but it really is important to this uh, our country and to the globe. How do you guys think about an issue like that? And in particular, what do you think about climate change uh, over the next five years with financial services? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I'm happy to share some initial thoughts and also some observations thus far um, as a starting point. So look, I mean, I, it's clear 2020 in particular, I think has laid bare many of our most acute societal vulnerabilities and climate risk is high on that list, right? From wildfires in the West to the intense flooding in the Gulf region. I mean, we've just, everyone's been impacted pretty materially um, uh, as a result of climate change. I think we're just at the beginning um, of kind of this reckoning and it might, you know, and what it might mean for financial systems. And we're starting to see a little bit of this, but just some higher level examples. I mean, you know, insurance companies, for example, and we're starting to see a bit of this already is could withdraw from California, right? In the wake of all of these fires or, and home values can drop on the coastline and the floodplains. Um, You've got Midwest banks who could limit loans during or after extended droughts, right? That could drastically lower crop yields. These, these extreme weathers could cause like a swing in agricultural commodity prices. We're seeing kind of climate-spurred market volatility, which could infect, affect um, pensions and retirement funds. I mean, there's a lot of multipliers going on here. I think what we are seeing, and this is giving me some hope, is there's, there's a recognition among financial regulators that climate change represents a serious risk, right? So the CFTC issued a report this year, concluded that climate change threatens U.S. market financial markets. Right. And, and they said, as the cost of wildfires, storms, droughts, and floods spread through insurance, mortgage markets, pension funds, and other financial institutions. So there's, and this is by a number of thought leaders, particularly from the financial institutions, we're seeing recognition and some really movement by the new administration um, and by thought leaders around this dimension. And, and finally, we're also starting to see a little bit of it on the fintech side, right, in terms of the innovation. I think there's a lot more to be done here, uh, uh, no doubt. One of them is actually from one of our other investments in the challenger bank space in the U.S., Aspiration, right? They've always focused on helping socially conscious consumers vote with their wallets. They have things like fossil fuel retirement funds. They have plant your change, plant protection, like those types of initiatives where consumers are really leaning into supporting the change through their investment dollars. Um, We have banks like the Beneficial State Bank, we're only using loan books to fund like clean and renewable energy. So they're not going to loan to coal or oil or gas. Um, and then we've got a bunch of like climate change risk assessment startups that are looking to try to assess how, how to price climate risk into financial products like bonds, so like um, 427 and Future Proof and others. But I think that we're just at the very beginning of this. And I think it's going to take, honestly, a, a concerted effort, a little like what we've done here for, with financial health, to be honest. Um, and that's going to take both innovation, but also research to really address like what are the underlying root causes and what ways can we as investors, as policymakers, align on finding interventions to really help drive um, improvement in how we're dealing with climate change. Because I think it's very clear, you're right, while it's not financial health in its most general sense, it impacts consumers at its core and their livelihood particularly for those in the cases where they own homes or they're renting and these types have had massive impact on their lives or their jobs and access. Excellent. Well, Emmeline, this has been such a fun conversation and I love hearing uh, 
you know, as venture capitalists, we like to be at the beginning of things. And uh, it certainly seems like there's a lot of things happening where where the, the next 10 years are even more exciting than the last 10. So thank you again for, for coming on and uh, for sharing all your wisdom and insight. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. Happy holidays. It's a new year and a time for resolutions. And here's one for FinTech. Even in a time of speculation and massive wealth creation and possible destruction, let's keep our eye on what really matters most and what's brought FinTech to where it is today. It's something certainly you see with Flourish, this emboldened determination to do well by also doing good. And it's certainly not a novel idea, but when financial technologies and expertise are brought to bear strategically to not only outcompete others, but to also inspire competitors in an industry to themselves do better, you can't help but feel that there's something innovative in the very business thesis itself. And it's something we aspire to in this new year ourselves. So look out for us to not only do the best we can in bringing you top flight stories, but to also inspire new conversations, both on the podcast and beyond. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.